now. Uh, we are in a series on John, uh, John, in John's Gospel. We've got to the back end of John 16 this week. So if you have a Bible, please do find John 16. And we're going to read in just a moment from verse 16. And Dave, if you could click on to the next slide where I've got my title for this morning, uh, which is, uh, whereas we've been looking at Jesus' spirituality uh, through uh, this series, we're looking this morning at the subject of a spirituality of suffering. Uh, When surveys are done of the reasons why people find it hard to believe in God, uh, again and again, the top two reasons that come out are evil, suffering in the world, and personal tragedy. And uh, anything about science or other religions that have come a long way further down. These questions of suffering and evil are, for many, many people, an obstacle to faith. It's hard to know which of those two is the bigger issue, the problems out there in the world, or my own problems. It's been said that the least pain in our little finger gives us more concern and uneasiness than the destruction of millions of our fellow beings. Uh, That may be true. Some people may be more self-absorbed. Some may be more absorbed by the troubles of the world around them. Uh, Darwin uh, himself was troubled by the problem of pain. Uh, He was both touched by caterpillars and by the death of his 10-year-old daughter, Annie, his favorite daughter, who died of what may well have been tuberculosis, uh, but also touched by the fact that even caterpillars in the world have to die painfully with parasites and so on. The problem of pain has shaped people's spirituality for a very long time. Of course, there is a clever intellectual answer to the problem of pain. It's very simple and it is profoundly unsatisfying. The simple answer is, God knows what he's up to, and it's foolish for us to think that we'd ever understand all of God's purposes, how arrogant of us to think that we ever could, and God's working everything out for uh, his purposes to be fulfilled, and we just need to accept our smallness and God's greatness and God moves in mysterious ways, we trust him, and that's an appropriate thing to do. I mean, intellectually, that holds water. Our brains are only about that big, or so. Yours may be slightly bigger. You've got a big head. Um, the idea that that you know, sort of few pounds of wet tissue uh, you know, that rattles around uh, would understand all of the morality of the universe is, of course, arrogant, Um, So, I mean, intellectually that holds weight, but it's profoundly unsatisfying because it leaves our hearts aching. And really this problem of suffering, it may be expressed intellectually, but it's a matter of the heart. And there are many things that make our hearts ache. In John 16, Jesus says something to his disciples which will make their hearts ache. Ache. We read from verse 16. Jesus says, In a little while you will see me no more. Uh, the, this phrase, in a little while, uh, is used in the Gospels 
to mean really in just a few hours' time. It's not one of those, in a little while, a day is as a thousand years, it might be in the next century. This phrase, a little while, means you're about to experience this. He's warning them of an imminent pain that is going to come upon them. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then he says, and then after a little while, you will see me. Now, these next verses, if you were here in early February when I was speaking from a passage in John 14, a number of the things in this passage will remind you of that because there's much overlap. But then Jesus said he was going away to the Father and that he would come back. And he was speaking of the fact that he would ascend into heaven and after actually quite a long, unknown rather, period of time, he would come back with his second coming. In this passage, with the little while before he goes and the little while before they see him again, Jesus is speaking of the fact he is about to be executed. But within a few days, he'll raise from the dead. And so he's speaking here not just about the long uh, um, story of history, but about pain that is about to come upon them and what will follow. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me, and because I'm going to the Father, which is something he'd said earlier. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. What's he saying? Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, are you asking each other what I meant when I said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Now, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby's born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. They'd not prayed that way. They'd not prayed to the Father in Jesus' name. But you will ask in that way. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father and entered the world and now I'm leaving the world And going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered 
each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Pain will turn into joy. But before that, Jesus says in this passage, in a number of different ways and different times, actually, uh, you will suffer. He says to his disciples, you will suffer. I'm going to leave you. In a very short time, I'm going to leave you. And here, towards the end, he says, you will be scattered. You will have trouble. It's really important to note that when Jesus says these last couple of things, you will be scattered, you will have trouble, it comes immediately after the disciples have just found a new measure of faith. They've just stepped up to the mark, believed in a new measure who God is. And then Jesus says, and you're going to suffer. And it's important we hear that. Because how many times when we experience suffering do we say, oh, if only I'd had more faith. If only I'd been more spiritual. If only I'd trusted God more, maybe this would never have happened to me. And that anxiety, that worry, compounds our suffering. Here, as Jesus' disciples reach the peak of their faith whilst Jesus was with them, he says, and you'll suffer. And so faith in Jesus is not an immediate get-out-of-suffering-free card. It doesn't work that way. We could put it this way. Having looked, uh, read through this passage, suffering is inevitable, but sadness and anxiety are not. We put it, say that again. Suffering is inevitable, but sadness and anxiety are not. Because this passage promises joy and peace. And joy is the opposite of sadness. And peace is the opposite of anxiety. Faith does not mean that we avoid suffering, but it is the key to joy and peace. So here we are. Jesus says, pain will turn into joy. Uh, This statement was spoken, as I said, about the next few days, that he would die, they would suffer, he would be raised from the dead, and they would have joy again. But the same truth extends beyond that window of time and applies to our lives now. Uh, In Romans 8... It says that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And it says that that will continue until Jesus' second coming. This truth that there is pain, but that, that it will turn to joy, is true for us too. Of course... There's a danger that with that we might just sort of somehow try and put on a thick skin and say, well, we'll just get our heads down 
and endure. And you know, if this world is suffering and we're set free from it in the life to come, then let's just do all that we can to cope in the here and now. But in verse 24, Jesus says, Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. There is a place for prayer in receiving joy. There is a place for prayer in receiving joy. If we are sad, if we are joyless, then it may be because we are prayerless. The New Testament says at one point, you do not have because you do not ask. And it's certainly true that there is much joy that is missing from our lives because we've not prayed. There is much anxiety in our lives because we've not prayed. One thing that was causing me some anxiety, uh, may not be entirely free of that anxiety yet, but uh, you'll see why in a moment. One thing that's caused me anxiety uh, has been our church finances. We came into this financial year with uh, an overdraft of £20,000, and we've been losing £5,000 a month. And uh, that's troubled me a little bit, because by the end of the year, that would leave us £80,000 overdrawn. And that would probably mean that we, I don't know, maybe Keith and I both need to resign or something, because, you know, there's just not the money to sustain our pattern of church life. So that's a source of some anxiety. Anyway, about three weeks ago, I was praying. I was praying and asking God to intervene. And within a week, three things happened. Uh, I heard news of two exceptional gifts coming to the church, which together totaled £37,000. And I, we heard confirmation that um, Chapel Street, the charity with whom we're working, going to make uh, further payment to us that was, had become unclear, altogether totaled £49,000. So I was quite happy. <laughs> I thought that was worth praying for. It's a pretty good rate of return. I prayed for about three hours, so that's about 17 grand an hour. <laughs> Um, so I reckon I've got about another hour and 45 minutes of praying to do, and it'll all be fine. Actually, what I'm praying for, I mean, it'd be great to get some more exceptional gifts. What I'm praying for is that we'd see a change in the regular giving, so that we wouldn't be losing £5,000 a month. But, huh, prayer answered brings joy, right? We heard Rantimi's testimony this morning of, and the smile on her face because of God having healed her. Pain will turn into joy, and prayer has a part to play in that. Now, of course, some will say, but I have prayed, and still I suffer. It's true, as I read from Romans 8, that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, and will do so until Jesus returns. The truth is that our joy isn't achieved by all of our suffering ending, but joy comes in the midst of pain. 
Joy comes in the midst of pain. God promises that he will do a new thing. I love uh, a poem called The Grandeur of God, written by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And it finishes by saying this about the pain in the world and what will occur. He writes, generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning, and at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wing. There's promise of newness because of God being for us. And so pain will turn into joy. Jesus also says in these verses that there is joy in knowing the Father. And for this, I need two Rileys this morning. I've not given you any warning of this. But James and Malcolm, if you could help me, please, here. I need you to come. I'm not going to embarrass you. It's all right. I was thinking, father and son amongst us this morning. Here we are. If you could just come and stand here, because it's a little picture of God here this morning. (laughs) It's all right. You're not going to have to do anything much at all. Just... Relax, it's okay. I'm going to ask for some more people to join me in a minute because what happens in these verses is that Jesus starts to say, you've been relating to me, but you're going to relate to the Father. And there's something in this that gives the disciples a real aha moment where they realize for the first time what Jesus has come to do and been trying to teach them all along. So can I have, uh, we're down to 11 disciples now because Judas has left. Can I have 11 volunteers, please? Okay. Brilliant. Is that about 11? How many is that? Uh, 10. I need one more. Uh, is that right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, there we go. Brilliant. So I want you two over here, please, because you're in heaven you're, and you're not. Could you all just go down that way a little bit? Just bunch up a little bit down there, please. See, what has happened is that Jesus, come on James, you want to be Jesus, Jesus has come from the Father into the world and is connected with people. And they've got to know, they're not quite sure who he is, to begin with. Uh, But in John's Gospel, there's been an unfolding revelation. Jesus comes and he says, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Actually, Jesus is God himself. They haven't understood all of that. But Jesus comes, and having been with the Father for all eternity, knows what God is like and speaks what God is like to the disciples. And they start to understand that his words, his words, 
are eternal life and reveal what the Father is like. But they've only seen Jesus. And uh, in John 14, which we looked at a few weeks ago, one of the disciples, Philip, I think it was, he wants to be Philip. Yeah, he's a bit of a dullard. Come forward. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jack. uh, Says, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you get it? I, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't say it, it's all right. (laughs) If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he says to them in John 15, look, You've been my servants. I'll read it out. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. I instead have called you friends. Can you get like in a group hug kind of thing with Jesus? Get in a group hug with Jesus. You should be in the middle, really. No, he's all right. He's all right there. I call you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And so they've got to this great point where Jesus has drawn them into intimate friendship with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus has drawn them into friendship with him, and it's at this point where they finally come into close friendship with the one who can tell them about the Father, that he says, right, I'm off then. So you better come out, Jesus. I'm off. That's why they're sad. They've just got to this point of going, this is the man that can tell us about God, this is the man that can tell us about the Father. And he says, oh, good, I'm glad you've got that. I'm off. They have this aha moment at this point because Jesus speaks to them further. And he said, aha. He says, says, from now on, you are going to pray directly to the Father. Because I'm going to go back to the Father and be with him. But the friendship... The friendship that he has established with his disciples remains. He has gone back to the Father. And so, disciples, you can come over here too. You too. There's one big group hug going on now. <laughs> Jesus says, my, because of my going away, this is what he says, because I'm going back to the Father, from now on, you have direct access to the Father yourself. You will pray to him in my name, according to my will. But you don't just have to go to Jesus and plead with him, please show us something of the Father, because everyone who is in Christ has direct access to Malcolm, oh, to Father, (laughs) which is a good thing, but to Father God, which is even better. Does that make sense? Okay, you can sit down. Thank you very much. Very helpful. And they go, oh, wow, that's amazing. We can know God for ourselves. John, in the book of Revelation, says, I saw a door standing open in heaven. Now, it's true, you find this in the book of Hebrews and and elsewhere, it's true that Jesus is our priest who intercedes to the Father for us. But it's a mistake for us to think that somehow the Father is distant and only Jesus really loves us and has to somehow mediate everything that goes on between us and the Father. Every one of us has direct access to our Father God. And in that, there is fresh joy. The Spirit 
of God, who also gets involved in this after Jesus has gone back to be with the Father, causes us to cry out, Abba, Daddy, to God, and gives us that direct connection with Father God, which fills our lives with joy. There is no greater joy than being in close relationship with Father God who made us and loves us with an everlasting love. And that relationship with God is there for us at all times. It doesn't matter actually how much we're suffering when we experience any kind of pain, we can turn to Father God and our experience of him is transforming. We experience joy in the Holy Spirit and it says in the New Testament that that joy will be our strength. And so there's a danger that when we're suffering, if we don't experience that joy coming into our lives, we will miss out on the strength that God gives us through that joy in order to sustain us through our trials. Okay. (laughs) My next point (laughs) is that Jesus' victory brings peace. Um, It's important to note in this passage what Jesus says his victory is over. Jesus says that his victory is over the world. I have overcome the world. And in John's gospel, the world is a phrase that specifically refers to the evil in the world, to to Satan and to sin. And that's why I've got this picture here of Jesus at the point of his temptation in the desert saying to Satan, but it is written, it is written, it is written, and he defeats Satan and that temptation to evil. And he's able to say, and he'd run up to his crucifixion, I have now completed all that God called me, the Father sent me to do. I have, he's remained sinless, as he has been from all eternity, but remained sinless in the world, and has defeated Satan through his sinless life, He's bound the strong man, it says in Luke's gospel. And so the fact that Jesus has overcome the world means that we too can overcome evil and sin and temptation in our lives. The peace that Jesus speaks about is not about, it's not focusing on all the stuff out there that somehow needs to be made tidy. Because we will have trouble until Jesus returns. But the fact that Jesus has overcome the world means that the sin which would otherwise entangle us and all that goes along with it is something that we are set free from to enjoy the peace that God gives John writes in his first letter, you, dear dear children, are from God and have overcome unclean spirits because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. I mean, one way or another, it doesn't feel particularly peaceful just at the moment. 
Um, there's a promise of scripture here that because of what Jesus has done in overcoming Satan and sin, we do experience this. It's great that we're going to break bread in just a moment. And it will draw us back in our focus to the truth that Jesus has overcome everything that would stand between us and the Father. And as I began by saying, suffering is inevitable, but sadness and anxiety are not. And as we break bread, um, we're going to remember what Jesus has done for us. We're going to remember his victory over sin made real in our lives as we're forgiven. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh, as we do. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But joy and peace come by the Holy Spirit's work in us. And um, I feel I've been a bit thrown off what, sort of my game, if you like, this morning, a bit. But what I'm clear on is this. This is what I'm sure we must hear out of this passage this morning, that whilst we must pray for change in the, the suffering and pain in the world, and God will answer those prayers, and that will bring us joy, that we don't have to wait until that happens before we experience joy and peace. They come to us by our relationship with God at all times. At all times. And if you're waiting for some situation to be resolved and think, that's when I'll be happy, well, actually, that resolution will bring you joy, but you don't have to wait till then. There's joy and peace to be received even now. And uh, I trust that as we break bread, the Holy Spirit himself will minister that to each one of us.